0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. In a moment, we'll begin with verse 15 of Romans chapter 7. I heard about a mother who was making breakfast for her two-year-old daughter. And she asked her daughter, she said, Honey, what would you like for breakfast? Would you like a bagel? Or would you like a bowl of cereal? And the little girl answered, Chocolate. I want chocolate. And the mother said, No, you can't have chocolate for breakfast. Do you want a bagel or a bowl of cereal? And again, the little girl said, chocolate. I want chocolate. And the mother said, no, honey, you cannot have any chocolate until after lunch. The chocolate comes after lunch. Now, do you want a bagel or do you want a bowl of cereal? And the girl smiled and she says, I want lunch. That's what I want. I want lunch. (laughs) It's hard. Uh, We come into this world uh, with With sinful nature as our standard equipment and and we wrestle from the from not long after we start understanding anything all the way up until the day we die, we wrestle between our desires versus what we need to do or ought to do we We struggle between evil and good, and Romans chapter seven, beginning with verse fifteen, is a passage of scripture in which No less than the Apostle Paul confessed to having the same struggle. And the first time I ever read this passage, I'm telling you the honest truth. I couldn't believe I was reading it. It's one of the things I miss about reading something in the Bible for the first time. How it just takes you away. Now we've read it so many times that it it doesn't seem to have as much impact as it ought to. But the first time I read this, I couldn't believe that this was Paul saying these words. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. (laughs) What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's an autobiographical confession Of the Apostle Paul. It's incredible. How could Paul, this giant, Hall of Famer, superstar Christian, describe such an experience in his own life of a struggle with sin? I love the Star Wars movies. I'm so glad they're going to make another one. I hate it that Harrison Ford broke his leg. But after all, you're no longer the young Han Solo you used to be. But I love Star Wars. Uh, in, in The Empire Strikes Back, you remember there is that, uh, that, that segment of the film where Luke Skywalker, who is the good guy, is lured against the advice of his mentors into a lightsaber duel with the antagonist, the evil Darth Vader. And... As his mentors had warned him, Luke proves to be no match for Darth Vader, so much so that Darth Vader, with his lightsaber, actually severs Luke Skywalker's hand. And when he severs his hand, Luke also loses his own lightsaber, which was a saber that had been passed down to him, that was a family heirloom weapon. And he lost it, this valuable heirloom, along with losing his hand. He found out that he was no match. For the dark force, he was no match for the evil Darth Vader now uh, george lucas who who wrote and produced Star Wars, among the many things he was trying to do, he was trying to show in a galactic way this constant struggle that is in the universe and in our world and in every individual person 's life this struggle between good and evil, and our utter hopelessness to try to fight against it. He doesn't suggest that we shouldn't fight against it, but he does suggest that we are fighting an uphill battle in the struggle of good versus evil. I know a man, a good man, a funny man, a man younger than myself, a man I love, and he struggles. He's in his late 30s. As a high school junior, he was introduced to drugs, and he liked the initial buzz of the drugs so well that he very quickly became addicted to the high that he would get from the drugs, and those drugs got such a hold on this young boy's life that throughout the rest of his teenage years and his 20s and now into his 30s, he cannot rest himself away from his addiction. And he has been in one relationship and out of that relationship and in another one and out of another one and in another one and out of another one to the point where I can't even count the number of relationships that he's been in and out of. I don't know how many jobs he has had and then lost and had and lost. I can't tell you the the impact, the negative impact that the addiction has had on his life. If you could see a picture of him when he was 15 and a picture of him now in his late 30s, you would see immediately on his face the scars that the drugs have, have left. And he hates it. If you get him down one-on-one and you sit with him, he'll tell you, I hate what this is doing to me. I hate what happens to me when I yield to these drugs. And there'll be two, three, sometimes four months at best when he'll be totally sober, totally dry, not touch a single drug, not even be around it. And he's like a different person. And then at a moment's notice, He falls prey to it again, and it's just like he just dives headlong and is like a totally different person. He's wrecked his family. Family reunions can't be reunions anymore because there's so much tension, you could could cut it with a chainsaw. And that man's struggle is his struggle between good and evil. He knows what is right. And he wants to do, there's a part in him that wants to do what is right, but there's another part that just seems to be drawn to this evil and the temporary feelings of elation that he gets. And he finds himself hopeless. I know a lady, a good lady, a giving lady. In fact, one of the most giving people I've ever met. And this lady loves to shop. Oh, now, uh, don't get me wrong. There's nothing sinful about shopping. Shopping is good. In fact, I like shopping sometimes. Now, I can't, I can't shop uh, uh, to the full extent that Amanda does. I'm telling you right now. She wears me out after about the first hour. She can shop. There's nothing wrong with shopping. But for this particular lady, shopping has become the equivalent of the previous young man's drug addiction. And so she goes to work, and on her way to work, she will leave early enough in the morning that if she finds a store that happens to be open that early, she'll stop and shop. And then she'll go on to work, and over lunch hour, instead of spending lunch hour in the break room or down at the Wendy's or the Cracker Barrel or the subway or what have you, she looks for a place to shop. Shopping is her food. And then when she gets off work, before she goes home, she will shop. And so that when she finally does get home, it's after a couple of hours or more of shopping after she's gotten off work. Now, when she shops, she's not shopping for anything in particular. In fact, she's shopping for nothing in particular. But she just looks and she's an impulsive shopper. And everywhere she goes, there'll be something she sees that all of a sudden strikes her fancy and she'll buy it. And she'll buy it and she'll buy it and she'll put it on her credit card here and at this store, put it on her credit card there to the point she has no idea what a credit card balance is. She doesn't even really know what day of the month the credit card payment is due. And it's usually late and there's usually a penalty along with the interest. And her house is filled with things. In fact, you kind of have to make a way. Put a path through all these new things that she's purchased. And you know what? She knows, she knows what she's doing. And there's a part of it she likes, there's a part of it she doesn't like, but, but she hates what it ends up doing to her. In fact, uh, there's this exhilaration, this buzz, this high when she's buying something, but then she gets home and every single night she cries herself to sleep because she has a buyer's remorse. But she knows she'll wake up the next morning and she'll do the exact same thing. She knows what is right. She knows what is wrong. She wants to do what is right, but she finds herself every single day doing the same thing. For her, her shopping is the struggle between good and evil. I know another man. He's a good man and a capable man, an able man. He can't keep a job. Now, he's highly qualified. He has a lot of references. He has a lot of friends who who will will vouch for him because they know what he can do. And he'll get a good, high-paying job, and he'll work at it for about a month, maybe two. And then one morning, one morning, it's usually on a Monday, but sometimes a Tuesday, the alarm clock will go off, and he reaches over with one hand, and he slams it shut. He rolls over and decides to sleep in. And the next day, he does the same thing. And the next day... And he loses the job. And he calls his friends and they help him find another job. And he gets that job and he's good at it for a month or two maybe. And then the alarm clock goes off on that Monday or Tuesday. And the same thing happens. And he rolls over and he tells people, he says, you know, I know that I shouldn't be doing this. I know that this is not right. But he says, believe it or not, there are times when I absolutely can't help myself. And people shake their heads and don't believe him. He's in deep depression. Sometimes his depression is so deep that he cannot cannot pry himself out of the bed. But people don't believe him because a lot of people don't believe that depression is real. Some people said he was lazy. Some people told me, he says, you're not worth anything. You can't keep a job. You're not worth anything. Other people said, hey, man. You need, to, you need to gird up your loins, boy. But he can't gird up his loins. But nobody's going to believe him. And his struggle is his struggle between good and evil. The day before yesterday, we celebrated our 238th birthday as a nation. And every time uh, we come around to the Fourth of July, I-, I love to think about our founding fathers, the George Washingtons, the Thomas Jeffersons, the James Madisons, John Adams, Ben Franklin, Thomas Paine, all of those guys and what, what, what they did to build the foundation of our nation. And I'm, I'm amazed by it. I love reading about them. But, you know, our founding fathers struggled with some things. Some of them struggled with alcohol. If you read the, the, the biographies of some of our founding fathers, they really struggled with that alcohol. A couple of them, maybe even more, struggled with women. They did. You read about Benjamin Franklin. I love Benjamin Franklin. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. I love Thomas Jefferson. One of, the, one of the, my favorite quotes about Thomas Jefferson was made by John F. Kennedy back in uh, early 1963, that fateful year. He, he was uh, hosting a, a big uh, conference in, in one of the White House wings for all the men and women who had won the Nobel Prizes and they were still alive. Now, think about what kind of minds were in that room. And John F. Kennedy gets up and he looks around. And he says, man, he says, I suppose that this is the largest collection of knowledge that's been in the White House since Thomas Jefferson used to dine here alone. Love Thomas Jefferson. But Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin had trouble with women. They struggled. They struggled. In relationships. That's not blaming ladies. I'm not, I'm not saying that. It was, it was their own struggle. And all of them together struggled morally with the issue of slavery. It was the national struggle between good and evil. Here you have Thomas Jefferson, who was the major author of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this great architect of the Declaration of Independence was a slave owner, owned many, many slaves. He and John Adams were close, close friends early on. I mean, they, they loved each other, dined together, spoke together. But then they started this, this ongoing argument over John Adams' abolitionist ways and Thomas Jefferson's slavery and his enslavement of, of, uh, of people of color. And they, they started fighting so much that they stopped speaking to each other, hated each other. Until the very last week's. And months and years of their lives when both of them were so old and their health so frail that they couldn't leave their homes, but they started this this pen pal correspondence. And they became very close friends again, even to the point that on July the 4th, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, on July the 4th, 1826, both of them died within hours of each other on the same day. But they struggled with this issue of slavery. And and they knew what was right, and they wanted to do what was right, but they found themselves somehow not being able to do what was right at that moment. It was for them the national moral struggle between good and evil. Who does this sound like? In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us about a man... Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 15, he tells us about a man, a good man, a man who meant well, a man who had good intentions. But the man Paul describes struggles with something, something that was so intimate and private and raw that he doesn't even tell us the specific thing that he's struggling with. Did you notice that? He speaks in generalities. I can relate to that. I mean, who in this room is struggling with something. I mean, you're struggling with something, but you, you wouldn't dare tell anybody else in this room. You sure wouldn't tell the preacher. And guess what? I probably have some things I struggle with. I wouldn't dare tell you. I can tell you I struggle. You can tell me you struggle in general ways. But there are a few of us who are willing and honest and open enough to say, hey, this is what I struggle with. What? Are you kidding me? And so Paul says... And I'm paraphrasing, of course, I don't know what I do. I don't understand myself. I don't know what I do, he says. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's the thing I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, well, as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's something living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. Oh, I have the desire to do what is good. I have the desire, just can't do it. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, for this is what I keep on doing. And now if I do what I do not want to do, it can't be any longer I who do it, but it must be something living in me. So I find this principle constantly at work in me, that although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I'm a prisoner to that which is living within me. What a wretched man I am. This is Paul. I mean, can you imagine Billy Graham sitting at night? Oh, what a wretched man I am. God, you know that I know the right thing to do, but I just don't seem to be able to do it. A lot of scholars have a problem with this passage of Scripture, by the way. Some scholars have so much trouble with it that they have concluded that what Paul is describing is a pre-conversion experience of Paul. This, this, they say, is Paul describing what his life was like before he got saved, because nobody saved has certainly not Paul. There are other scholars, and I agree with this latter group, who say, listen, you look at the whole context of Romans, this can't be the description of a man who was before being saved. This is the description of a man who is saved, but still struggling daily with serious sin in his life. And the fact that Paul is so honest with us that he he declares this, he admits this is, is incredible. There's some things I notice about this, some principles that we find in these verses I want to share with you. One is that salvation does not obliterate the presence of sin in our lives. There are not as many of these folks around now, but at one time there were some Christians who were of the belief that once they invited Christ into their lives, he obliterated any possibility of sin in their lives. And so they never sin anymore. Occasionally, I would hear some folks, somebody saying that and I would be in their presence and say, you know, whenever I got saved since that time, I've never sinned anymore in my life because I'm sinless. And, and I would kind of step back, number one, in disbelief that they would say that. Number two, in my mind, I was thinking, usually I didn't say it, but in my mind, I was thinking, the very fact that you claim to be sinless is sinful. Sin is not wiped out when we receive Christ as our Savior. Second, and this is going to be kind of surprising probably for some of you to hear a preacher say this. We can be too hard on ourselves with regard to the sin in our lives. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should take our sin lightly or irreverently. But I am saying that, that there are among us, there are people who are so cognizant that we're sorry, that we're sinful, that all we can think about is how, how much of a failure I am, how much of a failure uh, we are. Paul said this. He says in verse 17, he says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. He says, I find that incredible. He says it again in verse 20. Now, if I do not, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. Every time I read that, I can't help it. Those of you who are my age and older, you know who I'm thinking? You know who I think about? Tell me. Flip Wilson. Remember Flip Wilson? Raise your hand if you know him. What was it he used to say? What? The devil made me do it. That's what I hear Paul saying. Listen, if I constantly do what I know I ought not to do, it's no longer me. It's sin living in me. In other words, the devil made me do it. Now, Paul is not justifying his sin and he's not excusing his sin. But I do think that he realizes that... There's a big part of sin in your life and mine that we have little control over. You did not choose your sinful nature. It came the day you were born. It was standard equipment on you. And nobody had to train you and me to be bad. Nobody had to train you and me to go against the rules. It came naturally for us. And let me tell you, because that sinful nature is in us, there will be times when we will sin. And we don't need to beat ourselves down 100% of the time over the fact that we have a sinful nature. Number three, Christians continually struggle with sin because of our sinful nature battling against our spiritual nature. You and I are born with this sinful nature that it leans towards sinning. When you receive Christ as your Savior, He plants within you a spiritual nature, a Christ nature. And so now, as a Christian, what you have living inside you is this battle going on between the sinful nature that you were born with and the spiritual nature that Christ gave you when you invited Him to be your Savior. It's like two dogs fighting in your heart. One of them is good and one of them is evil, and the dog that you feed is the one that's going to win. But we will always have that struggle because these two natures are present. And number four, victory over sin is possible only through Jesus. Paul says, verse 24, what a wretched man I am. What a man of hopelessness I am. He says, Who will rescue me from this body that is so subject to death? And then he concludes it in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul came to the realization that he was helpless and hopeless to defeat the sinful nature within him. He could not do it on his own. You and I cannot do it on our own. We must have help that comes from Christ It is only because of Christ working through us that we can at times defeat this sinful nature, this war that is going on. This is the reason why later in another letter of Paul's, his letter to the Philippians chapter 4 verse 19, he could come to this conclusion and say with confidence, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The converse is also true. I can do nothing without the Christ who gives me the strength to do everything. Who does this sound like to you? Mark and Amy Watson, as most of you know, have become temporary foster parents to three of the cutest kids you've ever seen. Timothy is two and a half. Anna, Ariana, is what, 12 months? One and a half. And then they just got Aura, who is 10 weeks. Timothy has learned some words, and his favorite word is this one: "No." Timothy, do you want to eat a can? You want a candy bar? No. Will you eat your vegetables? No. Will you say the word "no"? No. Will you say the word "yes"? No. Are you a good boy? No. Are you a bad boy? No. He loves the word. No. Now he's learned some other words that Amy has taught him, and I'm not going to go to those. (laughs) Let's just stick with the word no. What's interesting is he's pretty good at using that word no now. But when he gets my age, That same sinful nature that's in that little two and a half year old boy is going to prompt him to not say no when he ought to be saying no. And it will be his struggle, your struggle and my struggle in this world between the powers of good and evil. So when you heard this passage, this incredible autobiographical passage from Paul, were you surprised that it came from Paul? First time I read it, I was. Maybe you're not surprised. Uh, there's some people who, were you surprised about? that? No, I'm not surprised by anything. Hmm. Did it sound like Paul to you? Who does this sound like? When I read and I read Paul's description of himself in chapter 7, verses 15 through 25, here is the conclusion that I reach every single time. It sounds like me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there is no life like the Christian life. And yet, the Christian life is not without the struggle, the ongoing, constant struggle between right and wrong, good and evil. Your way versus evil ways. Lord, I'm so thankful for Paul, for his honesty. This incredible passage, he didn't have to include it, but he knew that we needed it. And how many times I have opened my Bible to Romans chapter 7 and been just encouraged and blessed and lifted up out of a hole of despair by his honesty. Because I could look in this passage and say, this is Paul. This is Paul. It's not just me, but it's Paul. And I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged because I, I, I realize I'm not alone, but I'm also encouraged because the same solution Paul found is a solution that I can find and that we can find. And that solution is a relationship with Jesus Christ who gives us the power, the true power, to overcome sin. I thank you for that, and I pray that every person here will lay claim to that solution. In Jesus' name, amen.